0: Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Montford Real Estate and I'm joined this week by Ben Sanderson, who is Managing Director for Real Estate at Aviva Investors Real Assets. Ben, great to see you. Now, you've been in the role for 12 months and it's been quite some year. Lots of economic and political uncertainty whirring around. Have you been dealing with everything and what are you looking forward to? Well, it's been an exciting year. 12 months
1: that have flown by. But yeah, as you say, Biggest repricing the real estate market seen for almost a generation. Biggest fall in the UK property index in the final quarter of last year. All the challenges of financial markets and mini-budget and political uncertainty and everything else. So it's been interesting and exciting, but pleased to be there. We're making good progress and lots to look forward to in the future
0: as well. Mm, and a good time, I guess, to be in the market wanting to do deals and above all having the capital to do deals, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think what's interesting about where we're at now with the Viva Investors is... We have the liquidity and the capital to take advantage of market opportunities. Many of our peer group are challenged on liquidity. Some of their funds and gating and facing the challenges of those sort of structures. That's been a position of Eva have been in, in the past and we know it's not a great place to be. So we are in a position where we've been on the front foot. We had several hundred million of investments through investment committee in the final quarter of last year, taking advantage of some serious mispricing and some great opportunities. And we'll continue to do that. We're on the front foot, we've got liquidity, we've got a great team. And we'll be taking advantage of opportunities as they come through in 23 and 24 and beyond.
0: Mm. And in terms of the structure of EVA Investors, lots of people obviously know of EVA having maybe bought insurance from them over the years or have done deals with the business as it has been in previous cycles. But can you just give us a bit of a headline overview of Aviva Investors at the minute in terms of how the real estate, real assets, infrastructure, structured finance, all those different elements sit alongside each other?
1: I mean, Aviva's a big organisation and one of the big tasks of the last few years has been to really sharpen our focus and make the business much more clear from the outside and the inside as to how we operate. So two broad parts of Aviva Invested, the liquid side, which I don't work in, but we work closely with our colleagues there and the real assets side of the business, private markets, if you like, that I work in. And that's broadly three areas. That's infrastructure, that's real estate, and that's structure of finance. Infrastructure and real estate do debt and equity, and it's a 50 billion sterling business. One of the challenges and one of the real big aims that we've made a huge amount of progress in in the last few years has been to really bring those business lines together, work more closely together. So I'm on a leadership group across real assets, that is tasked with identifying where we can integrate our investment processes and our people, but at the same time, acknowledging the idiosyncratic and unique nature of some of these investment lines too. So we're working more closely together across real estate equity and infra equity. We're working closely across real estate debt and equity. And we're working closely with Structure Finance. It's a big business. It's a business that really can take advantage of its scale. But I think also we can really be more efficient if we are more integrated and offer a a better service to our clients today and tomorrow by being more integrated. Because increasingly, investors are looking for scale. They're looking for businesses like us to partner with. And they're also looking for a range of investment solutions. And a fairly agnostic we find in how they get that. And so what we say, if you look across our business and you look at our debt and equity book, real estate and infrastructure, we've got a range of lines of capital, internal and external, that can take advantage of investment opportunities in a range of different risk profiles. And so the vision we have is to be able to fill almost any capital hole across real assets. And if we integrate our business well, we'll be able to take advantage of that in a really nimble way.
0: And that's quite a shift, isn't it, for the business?
1: I think it is. Frankly, I think the way the industry is going more broadly. Some of our peers are further down the line than others. We think we're well advanced compared to our peers. And it is a big shift. I think traditionally, real estate investors have traditionally been in real estate equity. We've been in real estate debt for a long time. And I think that we've almost as an industry reveled in the idiosyncratic, unique nature of real estate. We know it's different in many ways than other investment classes. But in so many ways, cash flow analysis, risk return, trade-offs, they're similar to all the other private market asset classes. And therefore, we can take advantage of the similarities by integrating our business well and offering better client solutions. And that's
0: what we're trying to do. Hmm. And do you think in the current market, are we going to see a big surge now in credit?
1: Well, we certainly think we just did a piece of work at the end of last year on where value is across private markets, across real assets. And our real assets house view is that there's a lot of value in debt today. Now, clearly, as debt markets reprice and there is a little bit more stabilisation of interest rates and maybe in some places some downward pressure on some pricing in the debt space, that could well change. But we think there's value in debt, both infrastructure and real estate. There is, however, increasingly signs that value is emerging in equity, both in Europe and the UK from a real estate perspective too. Infrastructure is interesting in the space we operate. We've not found much evidence of mispricing across the infrastructure equity space in areas like renewables, because it's a very much a you know in-demand sector that hasn't repriced at all based on what happened during the crisis of 22. But yeah, more value in debt than equity is a broad view.
0: And I mean, let's talk a bit about renewables. That's obviously a big area... present for everybody. It remains quite contentious, particularly in the UK and parts of the United States. Where do you as a shop sit on this? Are you looking potentially at having strategies which bring together pure real estate with energy solutions? Is that something that could be packaged together?
1: So let's be clear where we stand as a group out of investors. We think there's an important part to play in the transition to a low carbon economy. We think that as a business, we're trying to play our part in that in terms of our activities as a group and as an investment group within Aviva, we think it's really important to provide solutions to capital to help that transition to a low-carbon economy. We are deploying money and infrastructure into, for example, renewable energy, as I say. Uh, Wind farms, for example, has been a part of our strategy, looking at, issues around battery charging, EV charging, these sort of strategies which go beyond just pure renewables but are part of the transition to a low-carbon economy. And in real estate, we're looking to invest in effectively what you might call brown assets and help turn them green, so mm. repositioning assets to, again, play the part in more energy-efficient developments of more energy-efficient buildings.
0: And is there an opportunity, you think, for big asset owners, whether it's Aviva or others, to be leveraging that asset base to help emerging technologies come forward. So you mentioned battery charging and EV charging alongside that. These are the sorts of things that can only really have an impact if they're rolled out at scale. And the same argument applies across a whole range of areas, and that might be in areas like regeneration as well. But on the specific
1: question, there is definitely a role for private capital to play in bringing those strategies forward. Let's be clear, the environment that we're in today is where all governments are cash constrained there's a growing interest in what you might call impact investing or investing through a more sustainable lens groups like us have always thought about the long term I've always thought about sustainability in its broadest sense it's one of the reasons frankly I was attracted to join Aviva is that that is a very much part of the DNA of the business and if you're not investing in those sort of solutions i think you're doing your clients a disservice because those sort of solutions will be the best from a risk-adjusted return perspective as you look forward. I often make the point from a real estate perspective that, for example, on a specific point to illustrate that, those investors that price the risk, the net zero risk, the carbon risk of real estate assets will outperform going forward. So I think it's important you do that from your social licence drop rate perspective, as in it's important that we do that because we are part of society as a group. But it's very important as well in terms of delivering the best risk of
0: returns to your investors. Mm. That's really significant. And just thinking about that point you made there on the social licence, how much of that was shaped by your upbringing? Tell us about your upbringing. You're a yeah. Lancashire lad, aren't you? I,
1: I am, yeah. So I grew up in a ex-mining town called Lee. I grew up in the 70s and 80s when the whole of my community was going through its own energy transition. It was going through a transition from the coal economy to the gas economy. And that meant deindustrialization. It meant economic challenges for many people that I grew up with. And those former mining towns in the north and in the Midlands and in South Wales and other parts of the UK have never really recovered their affluence since then. And I observed from that experience that if you go through these sort of economic transformations in a way that doesn't acknowledge the social consequences, that just has an eye on the economic growth angle rather than the broader social impact of economic growth or economic changes, it won't do society any good in the long term. And so we as a society are dealing with a lot of economic challenges in communities like the one I grew up in, challenges of education, challenges of funding, challenges of social care and a whole host of issues. And that was a very sort of, you know, important formative experience to me. I've not lived in that area for nearly 30 years now, but I go back quite often to visit friends and family and it's a challenging, difficult environment. And lots of communities are suffering the same way. And you can see that in the values of real estate assets if you want to
0: take a real estate metric on that as well. Yeah. So how did you end up where you are now, I mean, presumably real estate fund manager wasn't one of the things given to you when you were 30 no, years no, old when by you, the when careers when advisor. You,
1: yeah, when you visit the careers hall in my what school... What they tell you? Was, yeah. Uh, the best job you can hope for, I think, back in those days, and it does sound a bit Monty Python, was an office job or working as a teacher or something like that. So my route into real estate wasn't the traditional one. I studied economics at university and worked in academia, studied in economics, and then came into the real estate industry through a research route, a research economics route. And that's always been an advantage to me to some extent in that I really value the skills of my colleagues who've got that direct surveying sort of background, but I often feel like I can add a bit more to that with my economics background. I look at things in a slightly different way. So I worked in a pan-European function at John's La when I first joined the industry. And again, that gave me a broader perspective on the industry. And I think what's happened in the last 20 years has been the industry's become more global and more international to being almost at the ground floor of that in my first role at Jones Landers Hall has been really helpful because you've seen those forces, you know, from the ground up, if you like. You've seen that flow of capital across Europe and across the world that really transformed our industry from a capital perspective and a people perspective. And I've seen that from early on in my career, and that's
0: been a big advantage to me, I think. And what was some of the best advice you received along the way?
1: Yeah, well, often many of us can hear the voices of those mentors you had early in your career. I think in an industry that we operate in where People value instincts and a gut reaction to investments. The best advice I've had, which set me in quite good stead, I think, was to always look through the valley, always look through the immediate answer and look for the longer term answer or look for the more difficult answer sometimes. And I suppose that's always been something I've tried to do is to not procrastinate and be paralyzed from making a decision, but always think about it from a different angle and think through things a bit more deeply. Not to say my colleagues and people I've worked with don't do that, but bringing that different, more strategic perspective to things was always something I tried to do and I was advised early on to try and do. Because it ultimately it comes down to, in organisations, what can you offer? And you offer more if you're yourself and you offer more if you're offering your own skills that are a genuine, authentic version of yourself rather than trying to copy other people. Mm. So be yourself. And in my case, that was being
0: more strategic and thoughtful about things. And it's that something that we're lacking now in business, I'm not just talking about property, but just more generally in financial services, is there a lack of authenticity? Are people scared to be authentic?
1: There's a couple of thoughts around that. One, I think people would be surprised if you took a walk around the City of London, particularly in the real estate or the fund management industry, meeting people who are genuinely such a much more diverse cross-section of society than they ever were when I joined the industry. So we've got a lot more to do on this issue of diversity for sure. But it's a lot less white, southern-based, middle-aged industry than it was. I'm saying that as someone who lives in the south of England who is white and middle-aged, I hasten to add. But the industry does have a more diverse pool of people than it ever has, but we need to do more. And that does lead to a bit more authentic behaviour generally. However, I think what one of the challenges of this environment we're in today is it's hard to take big decisions in this environment because a lot of people are really fearful about what happens next. And I think with a bunch of people in our industry who've been 10, 15 years since the previous crisis, the lack of experience there, which means it's difficult to really put your stamp on things. So there are authentic people. Maybe we don't get a chance to talk about ourselves in this way that often. But yeah, there are authentic people, but I think we can do more to bring those qualities out of people as an industry.
0: Mm. I mean, in terms of what happens next, let's go on to that because... You're involved with a number of different strategies, various different asset classes from Spanish build-to-rent, UK logistics, office refurbishment you've mentioned. What are going to be some of the headlines over the next couple of years in terms of those asset classes you're going to be focusing more on? And what are some of the things that capital partners might want to talk with you about?
1: Yeah, so we are clearly want to take advantage of our scale. That's one of the big things I don't think we've really done that well in the past. And what I mean by that is we're developing much more strategic capital partnership with big capital. We've got a large pool of capital from our parents. We're looking to grow and diversify away from our parent and deploy capital on their behalf, but also bring in more capital from third party investors. And as we do that, that will mean more strategic investments in our major towns and cities, more focus on big developments, big regeneration. That's going to be a big focus what we're trying to do as a house. And that means, for example, a big role for housing. We've begun to develop our strategies in that space. So, for example, we've got a partnership with Package Living in the UK in single-family homes, developing our partnerships in housing across Europe, as you mentioned, in Spain as the first one. And we think housing is going to play a big part in what we do going forward. We invest as a group in the debt of social housing platforms, for example. Our long-income business invests in supported and social housing. So housing in all its forms will be a big part of the future, and that plays into a gap from a capital perspective. It also plays into good risk-adjusted returns for investors, but also it plays into solving one of the UK's and Europe's biggest social and economic problems. So housing will be a big part of it. Also, like many of our peers have talked about this, and we buy into this too, real estate is obviously becoming more operational. So I think going forward, we'll have to... Developer a team and develop our business in a way that takes advantage of that. So that means, for example, not necessarily doing everything in-house. From a business point of view, if real estate is more operational, you have to find out what you can do and what you have to work with operating partners to do. So expect things around that from us as well as we try and build our business and really take advantage of the opportunities that are out there.
0: And in terms of the capital that you see flowing into the UK, into Europe, is the domicility of that going to change over the next Yeah, it's
1: interesting. I think we've for many years talked about, you know, some of the capital coming in here into the UK from Asia, from Australia, from Canada, and that I think will continue. Interesting, when I was in Australia recently talking to capital, whilst their compulsive superannuation scheme does mean big flows medium term, they've got a demographic issue in Australia. You know, the birth rate is falling and unless they have positive immigration, their capital flows into their pension schemes could well start to slow over the next few years. But broadly speaking, we expect the capital to be from Australia, from Asia, from Canada, potentially from North America, though I think North American risk return trade-offs from North American pension scheme investors tends to be a little bit juicier than maybe what the UK and European markets can bear. I don't see any significant difference going forward from what we've seen in the last 20 years, which is a diversification of capital sources in investments in UK and European real estate. We think about where the world was 20 years ago, very domestically dominated, maybe a bit of European capital. Yeah. Now you've got capital from retail investors. Now you've got capital from international investors. You've got capital from the big sovereigns. That trend is going to continue. I don't see a reverse of it, although maybe the growth might be slower, but I don't see a reverse of that at all.
0: Is there a waning of interest for the UK, though, given everything that's happened over the last year, given the fallout from Brexit, given the fact that some people just think we're at war with Russia right now? (laughs) Yeah, well, look, potentially. I mean, I think
1: investors are looking at the UK as... Europe, You know, it's the UK and it's a European investment strategy. I think international capital is doing that. To be fair, that's not a significant difference than the way investors think about the UK in the past, in my experience, because not being in the euro, the UK had a different set of risk characteristics, given the exchange rate risk you had to bear for investing in the UK previously. So, Brexit doesn't help, of course, from an economic growth perspective, but I don't think necessarily strategies are that different from an investment point of view. We look at the number of platforms from the US, say, looking to set up here from an operation or investment management perspective, that shows a long-term vote of confidence in the UK. Yeah. I hear stories of, you know, I think Aware Super, the latest one this week I read, you know, Aussie Superfund setting up offices in London too. So. London remains and the UK remains a destination that investors have to stop off in at least and have a look. And I think they'll continue to stop off, have a look and invest.
0: Mm. Well, we had Paul Clark on just before Christmas, actually. Paul Clark from Australian Super saying just that. And they've obviously made a significant commitment to the UK in that joint venture with British Land down at Canada Water in south-east London. But let's go back to risk, Ben. Aviva has been quite vocal in talking publicly about existential risks as it sees them and obviously being such a prominent insurance business, it's obviously something that will be on their minds. What are some of those existential risks in real estate and how are you as an investment house looking to tackle them?
1: Yeah, well, I think the biggest single risk that we face that is hugely strategic and hugely significant is the climate emergency, is climate risk. I mentioned earlier, I think that those investors who price that climate risk best will outperform. Hmm. We think that's a hugely significant issue. I think as you go down the more short-term issues that are solvable by more short-term strategies, I think there's a big challenge from all our occupiers' perspective, presenting itself in the labour market. That's a big challenge to our occupiers and to economic activity, which will play through into challenging rental growth environment as well. So those are two of the biggest challenges. But I think climate is over and above everything, really. And I think we are trying to develop strategies specifically to address that, as I mentioned, but also trying to increasingly integrate that into everything we do. So we are, for example, doing net zero audits of all our assets. I think most of our peers will be doing the same. But also trying to take a deeper dive into this to really understand how pricing will differ in the long term from the climate risk. And I think that there's a big challenge coming along from an office-occupier perspective, which hasn't arisen yet, which will see obsolescence you know, accelerate quite significantly in large parts of the office sector in the UK and Europe, as investors really acknowledge two things. They acknowledge, one, how difficult it's going to be to implement their net zero commitments they made two years ago, and two, they really acknowledge that some of these assets
0: have got huge challenges from a net zero perspective depreciation obsolescence perspective. Mm, And there's a lot of chatter in the market at the minute about people trying to get portfolio sales away that that are not just suffering massive discounts but just stalling because people just don't want to try and catch a falling knife.
1: Yeah I suppose from a pricing perspective we try and take a value view and that means long-term value. So Two things you've got to remember about that, of course. You know, Things are not necessarily cheap just because they've fallen in value. 25% less than it was doesn't mean it's cheap. But at the same time, don't try and be humble about your approach to this sort of thing. And don't necessarily think you can call the bottom of the market. If assets mm. present good value today, they may well continue to fall by another 5% or so. Hopefully not, but they may do. But if mm. it presents good long-term value, it may get a bit cheaper before it really asserts its long-term value. And that's the way I think you should invest. Have a view of value and have the confidence to invest when value emerges. I guess that's
0: the sense of having an order in charge of the business <laughs> as you come into the value phase of the industry, right? Yeah, well, I,
1: you know, I think, you know, you, we were joking about, so talking about my background, I guess, again, you know, it's overplayed, I suppose, but people I grew up, you know, fairly straightforward and it's fairly straightforward in the way you talk about things. That's what we try and do. We try and cut through the jargon at Investment Committee and talk about investment in a fairly straightforward way. Is it present value? Yes or no?
0: No, it's it's a fair point. I mean, just on that long-term investment point, one of the big debating issues for the insurance industry has been around solvency too, which is the complex EU rules that basically govern how much insurers have to have on their balance sheets to avoid going bust, which mean that if that's more flexible, you can basically undertake more long-term investment in infrastructure, in life sciences, and all these other things, where the payback period is often much more longer term than, you know, conventional resi development. Where do those rules sit? What's Aviva's view and what difference is this going to make?
1: Yeah, so to be clear, the rules are still being discussed, as we know, and they're not finalised yet. There's consultations, there's been a response from government, but they're still planned without definitive policies around them. It seems clear that the solvency rules will be relaxed. And that could potentially be a very positive outcome of Brexit. Our CEO of the group, Amanda, has been very clear that she sees that as a big positive, Were the indications the government has made about where the rules are going come to pass, that would release a huge amount of capital. And we've been very clear as a group, and Amanda's been very clear about the fact that we're looking to deploy that capital into... Assets of social value, infrastructure and real estate being part of that. Housing was a big commitment that Amanda made. And potentially that capital could be huge. And if you, you know, aggregate that across the insurance industry, that could be a hugely significant sum moving into socially productive infrastructure and real estate. So we're very excited about that. If that comes to pass, that'd be great. We'd look to, you know, play our part and deploy that through our team. The great thing about being within Aviva Investors is we've got a great team of people based in London and out of our Paris office who can really deploy that capital effectively. You know, we've got a huge amount of origination expertise across infrastructure equity and debt and real estate equity and debt, and we're ready to deploy that capital. Mm. So it's looking positive, but let's be clear, the rules are not finalized yet and the capital has not been released. But Mm. when that happens, we'll be there to do our bit.
0: I mean, are there other structures that governments can put in place to secure long-term investment? You've talked very openly about where you grew up. I grew up in Ilford in East London, which not quite as industrial as Lee, but probably not somewhere I'd really want to be living right now. And ultimately, I think all parts of the UK, whether they're North or South, there's a levelling up agenda that needs to be done everywhere. But a lot of these places you know, Ilford, where right, I grew up, has got a cross rail station, so it's fine, it's sorted, right? But I'm guessing Lee probably doesn't. So how do we, <laughs> do we do it? So the question is, obviously Aviva as a listed business needs to make a profit, as do any of the REITs that you invest in that we've had on this podcast over the years. So encouraging FTSE 100 number XYZ to go into Wakefield or Bradford, it's going to be tough. How does the real estate sector, the insurance sector respond to those social needs? What is the playbook that needs to be written here?
1: Yeah, so if you take a step back and think about how the real estate industry and the infrastructure sectors behaved in the last few years, there's been a huge amount of capital into a range of what you might call regeneration type projects. You know, my former shop and my current organisation could list them in Manchester and London and other parts of the UK, for example. Positive regeneration impacts. They've tended to go with the grain of what is commercially viable. So, you know, housing, housing led, retail led, office led type development schemes. Yeah, yeah. The challenge in these communities where values are lower is you have to move against the grain of where commercial values are. They just in very simple terms, in a place like Lee or Burnley or Berry or other places in the south, often the capital values and the construction costs and the return on capital needed just don't make redevelopment, regeneration viable. That's why it's been interesting to observe some partnerships between councils and investors to try and make that work. A personal view is the last period of time that we saw significant capital into public infrastructure, be it hospitals, be it housing, be it schools, be it roads, was when we had the public-private partnerships and the PFI. Now, I know lots of reasons why that's not necessarily that popular. Arguably, that gave too much to capital at the expense of the public purse. However, some sort of redesigned version of that feels to me to be something that is worth looking into. That's mm. a personal view. That's not an Aviva policy position, to be clear. But it feels to me there's a lot of capital, and our organization's a great example of it. We've got pools of capital that fulfil almost every risk-return bucket you can think of in real assets. Yeah. If there was a way of putting a government guarantee around some of these schemes and ideas, a government could step in in some way, in scale, to address the market failure that's happened, where land values are not falling to a level where you can regenerate effectively, it would be a really significant positive impact on private capital. Because private capital has got to be part of the solution to solving some of these problems, because there is not enough money in the public purse to do it. Mm. So a role for government alongside capital seems to be the real solution to this. So it would ensure that you could get a more modest return profile would be delivered to investors. It would help pension fund liabilities. It would help the communities we're investing in. Something like that feels it has to be part of the solution.
0: Well, lots there to think about for policymakers, Ben. Thank you for that. And obviously some big, big challenges when it comes to regenerating some of the more challenging hearts of britain and it'll be fantastic to watch and see how everything develops under your stewardship over the next few years so thank you very much for coming on you can also listen to the previous podcast we did with aviva investors esg head ed dixon from a couple of years back you can find that on various websites where propcast lives on apple on spotify on amazon on soundcloud wherever you get your podcasts from you can just search propcast leave us a review do suggest some other guests and if you'd like to get in touch at all you can email us through the website thanks very much for listening i'm andrew teacher from montford real estate and we'll see you again very soon